Thank you for coming back. After last week, you know, when you're preaching a hard topic, you're wondering who's going to be there next week. So, there you are. Thank you so much. We are with Jesus in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, with Jesus in the upper room. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all concern what we call the upper room discourse the night before Jesus is crucified. He is just hours away from his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tomorrow afternoon, Joseph of Arimathea will request permission for Pilate to remove the mangled and lifeless body of Jesus from the cross and place it in his own new tomb. The demoralizing effect of Jesus' brutal death and his swift burial will strike terror in the hearts of his disciples. Nine months earlier, he had told them to take up their own crosses and follow him. Were they next? Had Judas betrayed them also? Why had they ever left Jesus? I left their fishing nets, rather, to follow Jesus. You can imagine how terrified the disciples must have been over the next 24 hours. And knowing the disciples would soon collapse emotionally, psychologically, physically, Jesus must strategically use these final moments that he has in the upper room Prepare them for the looming tragedy. Now, last week we ventured into what is called the Upper Room Discourse by looking at the New Commandment. This week I actually want to back out just a little bit and try to appreciate the discourse as a whole. There's actually a great deal of mystery for the disciples in the Upper Room. And already we have discovered several of them. First of all, Jesus laid aside his outer garments and washed the disciples' feet. And that's actually where the mystery began. Jesus testified in verse 7 that the disciples do not understand what he is doing. But soon enough they will. Second, Jesus has revealed that one of them will betray him. But none suspected Judas. And Judas, in fact, left the upper room. The eleven assumed that he had really gone out to purchase food or to give alms to the poor. But Judas' departure, like fuel on a fire, suddenly puts a machine in the motion. For three years, momentum has been building against Jesus in Jerusalem. In John 5, the Jews were furious when he healed a man at Bethesda. In John 7, they attempted already to arrest him. In John 8, they attempted to stone him. And now they have managed to place a spy in Jesus' inner circle, his own disciple. And doubtless, there are many more spies lurking about the streets, reporting Jesus' movements to the Sanhedrin, who's already been quietly assembling in the house of Caiaphas for an illegitimate trial later in the night. 
The third mystery comes in verse 33, where Jesus says, Where I am going, you cannot come. Well, where is Jesus going? What the disciples do not understand becomes apparent in verse 36 when Peter bluntly asks, Lord, where are you going? And that question will lead to several more questions. As we read into the discourse, you discover that there is considerable confusion on the part of the disciples about Jesus. His departure, his identity, his betrayal, his death, and his future mission. Three years of public ministry seem on the verge of unraveling. Jesus, the kingdom preaching movement is on the brink of extinction when we come to the upper room. It's actually quite shocking how many things the disciples still do not understand at this very late stage of Jesus' ministry. In fact, if you just read the whole discourse, every time an individual disciple speaks in the upper room, he betrays confusion. That's true of Peter several times. It's true of John. Thomas and Philip, and Judas, not a spirit. In fact, when they all speak collectively, they also betray confusion. When they all speak collectively in chapter 16 and verse 29, they believe, oh, we finally understand Jesus. But Jesus essentially says, not so fast. All of you are going to scatter. Now, their confusion... It's especially intriguing when you realize that Jesus has reached his end, the end of his discipleship of the disciples. He's done. He's leaving behind some really ignorant disciples. Now let's take up our reading in John 13 and verse 36. And read down through John 14 and verse 14. And pay very careful attention as we read how much confusion remains on the part of the disciples. Peter will speak twice, Thomas will speak once, Philip will speak once, and in all four instances, the disciple betrays ignorance. Verse 36. Second Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And read the next verse with a question mark, and you know the way to where I'm going? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If 
you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, did you pick up on the disciples' confusion? Wouldn't you expect the opposite? After three years of following Jesus and coming to the end of his ministry, shouldn't his followers have it all figured out? That's what I would expect, but they don't. Not even close. There are three main things the disciples at this incredibly late hour of Jesus' ministry still do not fully comprehend. Two of them are explicit in our text, and the third is implicit, but becomes clear as you make your way further into the upper room discourse. First of all, the disciples do not understand where Jesus is going. Second, the disciples do not understand Jesus' identity with the Father. And third, the disciples don't understand the next stage of Jesus' mission. So let's make it really simple. Where is Jesus going? Who is Jesus? And what is the future of his mission? And let's expand on each question. First of all, where is Jesus going? Well, in chapter 13, verse 36, excuse me, Peter puts a blunt question to Jesus. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus' cryptic answer is, you cannot come along with me now. And Peter's response in verse 37 is, Lord, why can I not follow you? Jesus is going away, and Peter, you can't come along. And Peter is not the only one who doesn't understand. Look at chapter 14 and verse 5. Thomas enters the conversation. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So disciples clearly have no real notion about what's about to happen to Jesus. And this is not the first time that people have been confused about where Jesus is going. Six months earlier, in John chapter 7, and one day, Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And on that occasion, Jesus told the assembled crowds, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to the one who sent me. But the crowds did not understand. So they responded, where does this man intend to go? That we cannot find him. 
Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Well, the crowds did not recognize Jesus' heavenly origins and that he was going to go back to the Father. They assumed that Jesus was probably just going to go off and live among the Greeks somewhere. Maybe teach the Greeks, just like he taught the Jews. So how do you explain this misunderstanding? Well, the answer is the Jews did not understand Jesus' relationship with the Father. In fact, the word Father showed up 20 times in John 8. But the Jews remained clueless about Jesus' true origins. And in fact, if you recall, that conversation quickly became overheated. The Jews accused Jesus of being born in bastardy. And Jesus, for his own part, said that they are of their father, the devil. And they will do the work of their father. Can you imagine such a conversation? That same controversy actually showed up even earlier, all the way back in John chapter 5, when Jesus healed the man at Bethesda. And John told us the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So back in John 5. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So both in John 5 and in John 8, Jesus has already explained his relationship with the Father. So you would think at this point, his disciples at least should understand that he's going to return to the Father. It's one thing for the crowds to misunderstand, but the disciples? Nevertheless, Peter's question, Lord, where are you going? Tells us even the disciples do not comprehend. You know, why don't they comprehend? And the reason is directly related to the second question. Here's the second question. Who is Jesus? How could they understand where Jesus is going if they failed to understand his true identity? So let's consider the second question. All right? Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, we're, we're surprised, are we not? By the truth, the disciples do not fully grasp his identity. But that is the case. In John 14, and verse 7, Jesus rebukes Thomas. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And the if implies Thomas doesn't really know Jesus. And he's not the only one. In verse 8, Philip comes to Thomas' aid. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And at first glance, the request seems innocent enough, right? But look at Jesus' response. It's a rebuke. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? Philip doesn't really understand who Jesus is. He's identity with the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. 
Now, we've got to be very careful that we're not too swift to condemn the disciples. You and I would have responded exactly the same way, all right? We've had 2,000 years of church history to develop a theology of the Incarnation that is rooted in 27 New Testament books the disciples did not have. The failure of many Jews, including even John the Baptist and the disciples, to come to terms with Jesus' true identity is actually due to their very high view of God. Would it have occurred to you that the very God who put a perimeter around the foot of Mount Sinai, the God who fiercely guarded His holy presence in the Holy of Holies, the God who struck a man dead for touching the ark, the God who refused to show His face even to Moses, would it have occurred to you that that God would number Himself with transgressors? would be made, in the words of Paul, sin for us. Friends, that is either blasphemy or the deepest mystery in all the universe. God Almighty would come and create sin for us on the cross. This is a very deep mystery. Now, next week, we will return to Jesus' interaction with Thomas and Philip. But observe for now the interrelationship between these first two questions. When the disciples ask, where are you going? Jesus responds, I am returning to the Father. Do they understand? No. And why not? Because they do not understand the second question, who is Jesus? Actually, he's one with the Father. Now, if they lack answers to the first two questions, then certainly they will not be able to answer the third. Here's the third question. What is the future of Jesus' mission? If Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and he's about to leave, that must have struck the disciples as some sort of catastrophic failure. The Messiah is supposed to liberate Israel and rule, is he not? What then is Jesus' mission? Why did he come? Why is he leaving? What's next for the disciples? Why did this relatively young prophet, Jesus is probably in his early 30s, choose 12 disciples to launch a movement and then disappear from history? That very night, the disciples have been wrangling over positions of honor in his kingdom. How did they process the fact that now he's about to leave? That question really just sort of lurked behind the entire Upper Room Discourse. Now, our text does not explicitly state the disciples misunderstood Jesus' mission, but nevertheless, it is implied when you just work your way forward into the discourse, and you realize that Jesus is actually spelling it out for them, sometimes very cryptically. The disciples want to follow Jesus wherever he is going. But in verse 12, Jesus essentially says, You have a great work to do when I return to the Father. You have a mission to accomplish after I leave. I'm sorry, you can't come along. So again, as I say, much of the rest of chapter 14, right through the end of Jesus' prayer in John 17, is actually a preparation of the disciples for that mission that is yet, they still do not comprehend. 
This chapter is largely concerned last-minute hasty preparations for the disciples as Jesus prepares to leave. It's really shocking to read these chapters and just recognize how eager they are and to recognize Jesus is out of here. Like, whoa, they're not ready. In fact, let's just take a moment and let's just survey several aspects of this last-minute preparation. Shall we do that? Look in chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Jesus explains another comforter is coming to help them in their mission. And I will ask the Father, verse 16, and he will give you another, another in addition to myself, another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus' upper room discourse will formally introduce us to the Holy Spirit. And the announcement is a comforting revelation. But isn't it mildly shocking that Jesus is just now? After three years, just now, formally introducing the Holy Spirit? I mean, why not a year earlier? Why not two years earlier? Why not three years earlier? Why wait to the last moments that he has with them? By the way, the Spirit's coming. Now, verses 18 through 19 also offer confusing words of comfort. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Well, these are reassuring, if not confusing words. They imply that disciples are about to be orphaned in the world by their Messiah. But they won't be abandoned completely. But what does this mean? I will be alive again? But you won't see me and I'll be in you? What does that mean? Skip ahead to chapter 15, verses 7 through 8. Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples which they thought they already were. And now verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whenever you ask the Father my name, he may give it to you. But what exactly does this mean? Jesus is leaving, but his disciples are supposed to abide in him and be productive. How do you, how do you abide in somebody who's leaving? And they also have some sort of productive mission to fulfill. Of course, it makes perfect sense to us now, but surely these words would have struck the disciples as mysterious. Again, how do you abide in somebody who says, I'm leaving, you cannot follow me? And what about verses 18 through 19? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Well, that doesn't sound very reassuring. The one is going to hate us. I thought the Messiah's mission was to benevolently rule the whole world. What's going to hate us? How about chapter 16 and verse 2? Just listen to these words to the ears of disciples who have just been arguing over positions of honor in his kingdom. Moments earlier, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Does Messiah's mission involve persecution? Martyrdom? Verse 7 must have struck the disciples as particularly odd. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Well, how could it be to their advantage for Jesus to leave? And who is this Helper anyway? So can you really appreciate the disciples' confusion? We understand it all in hindsight. But in the moment, this must have been terribly, terribly confusing for them. Why would Messiah leave and then send someone else, the Helper? And notice what the Helper will do in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. Well, that all sounds great, but what about the kingdom? What about Messiah's rule? Why does Jesus suddenly emphasize the world? Didn't he earlier instruct these same disciples, listen to his words in Matthew, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what about Israel's kingdom? Did you forget about that, Jesus? Even after the resurrection, the disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Let's all just talk about the whole world. So here in the upper room, the disciples still do not have a good sense of their great commission to go into all the world. It's still mysterious. And why hasn't Jesus explained all of this already? In fact, Jesus bluntly acknowledges that they have a whole lot to learn. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. Isn't that shocking? There's a whole lot more you still have to learn. But sorry, I can't take any of that right now. Why? I'm leaving. Well, when are you going to tell them these things? That's the question I'd be asking. Well, what are you going to these things? And look at verses 16 through 17. And notice the disciples' confusion. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So, some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, I told them they're confused every time they speak. What is all this? Did, did Jesus actually speak in riddles to his disciples? Yes. Emphatically, yes. Look at verse 25. 
I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Isn't that interesting? There are all kinds of things that he said that are still very, very confusing. That sounds like Jesus is deliberately, if temporarily, obscuring truth from even his disciples. All right? So does that give you a greater appreciation for what's happening on this dark night in Jerusalem, the night before Jesus is crucified? It's really quite shocking, is it not? Well, let's summarize. Jesus prepares his disciples for the next phase of their mission. But mystery just runs right through the upper room discourse. And Jesus does not seem in any big hurry to make it all plain. And we have reached the end of Jesus' public ministries. ministry. And it isn't interesting the disciples have yet the disciples have yet to be formally introduced to the Holy Spirit. They have yet to fully appreciate the global dimensions of Messiah's work. They have yet to understand their future involves persecution and martyrdom. They have yet to learn several more truths, but they can't handle them yet, so Jesus doesn't tell them what they are. Our tendency is to read this whole discourse in the upper room as Jesus' last-minute coaching advice, his last-minute reminders of things that he has said for years before the team goes out and plays their championship game, right? You've heard all along, let me just remind you now what I've been saying all the way along. That is not what is happening here at all. Jesus throws at them several new cryptic truths, and they are already confused. Confused about where he is going, and who he is, and what the next stage of this mission involves. The disciples, I think, must have been just utterly, utterly confused. And to think that within 24 hours, Jesus will lie dead in a tomb. So, here are the three questions again. Keep these questions in mind as we work into the text over the next several weeks. First of all, where is Jesus going? Second, who is Jesus? And third, what is the next stage of his mission? Very soon, the disciples will have decisive answers to the first two questions. When Jesus suddenly resurrects and ascends, they understand he has returned to the Father's right hand. And Peter at Pentecost declares that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. Oh, we get it now. And they also know who Jesus is. Seeing the resurrection, Thomas declares, My Lord and my God. The resurrection, Paul says in Romans 1, was a declaration that Jesus was and is the Son of God in power. They get those first two questions answered decisively. Where did he go? And who is he? Well, what then of the third question? What is the next stage of his mission? Well, that question will be partially answered when the disciples rendezvous with Jesus back in Galilee, up on a mountain, after the resurrection. And there Jesus will give his great commission. But I say partially answered because contrary to what you might have heard preached, 
The Great Commission was not Jesus' last command. It was his second to last command. Later in Acts 1, immediately before his ascension, Jesus commanded, or ESV says, he ordered his disciples to return to Jerusalem and to do absolutely nothing. Yeah, go back there and don't do anything. That's the last command. But wait, he said, for the promise of the Father which you heard from me. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Who? Even the Spirit of Truth. Jesus' final command was, don't do anything at all until you have received the Spirit of Truth. And once you have the Spirit of Truth, then go forward with your mission. Now, when the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, guess what happens? Well, listen to the apostles preach begin at Pentecost. And all of a sudden, all those mysteries become crystal clear. Peter preaches the Old Testament with astonishing clarity and power. You're like, Peter, how'd you get it all figured out? Answer? He's full of the Spirit. That's how we got it all figured out. Paul the persecutor is suddenly converted, and he unravels numerous mysteries that's hidden away in the deep counsel of God from eternity past. That's actually his mission. I'm going to explain all these mysteries, Paul says. And in Acts, the Holy Spirit just picks up the flagging spirits of Jesus' disciples, and he empowers them to preach his gospel in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Friends, if the Old Testament revealed the Father... And the Gospels reveal the Son, Acts reveals the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes up the mission of Jesus Christ and He empowers hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands and millions of believers to advance Jesus' mission to the end of the earth. When the Spirit comes, the third question is answered. This is the future of Jesus' mission. It's empowered by the Spirit to the ends of the earth. So if you were to complete John's Gospel, I'm not saying that we're going to do this, but if you were to complete John's Gospel and then just read it immediately right into the book of Acts, here's what you would discover. The Holy Spirit is mentioned approximately 40 times in Acts. And let me just mention to you several texts. Chapter 2 and verse 4, he enabled disciples to preach the Gospel in other tongues. Chapter 4 and verse 8, he enables Peter to preach Chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is involved in the conversion of the Samaritans. Chapter 9, verse 17, the Holy Spirit is involved in the conversion of a man named Saul or Paul. Chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is involved in the conversion of a man named Cornelius. Chapter 13, and verse 2, the Holy Spirit separates Paul and Barnabas for the mission field. Chapter 16, and verse 6, the Holy Spirit directs Paul and Silas on the mission field. Are you getting the sense that the Helper has come? The Comforter has come just as Jesus promised? And guess what else happened? Look back at John 14 and verse 12. And notice this cryptic prophecy. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Well, what does that mean? We'll have to spend some time with it when we get there. But we know that when Jesus went to the Father, the Holy Spirit came and he empowered not one preacher. And not twelve. But hundreds and thousands and millions that preach the good news across the empire to the ends of the earth. So would you just listen to what happens in the book of Acts? I just want to read you a whole series of texts in the book of Acts. Listen to what happens. You try to explain this. Acts 2, verse 41. And the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. 2.47. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. 4.4. 4. How the many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. 5.14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. 6.7. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great coming of the priests were obedient to the faith. 9.31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord, and in comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. 11.21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. 11.24. And much people were added to the Lord. 12.24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. 16.5. And so the churches were established in the faith and increased in number daily. 17 and verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as had a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. 19 and verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. And 28. 30 to 31. Last chapter. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So how do you explain all that? Well, this is the mystery of the next phase of Jesus' mission. The disciples do not fully comprehend this at all in the upper room. But soon enough, they will. So what then is the takeaway message from all of this? What is the takeaway message? You know, it's interesting that Jesus is perfectly comfortable with his disciples experiencing mystery and confusion. It doesn't bother him. You guys are confused. You don't understand. That's fine. I'll tell you someday. The fact is, life is confusing, life is uncertain, but Jesus does indeed promise us another comforter. Jesus calls us into particular locations. We are not all called to preach, and I've made that very clear in the past. I believe that all the locations that Jesus calls us into are equally valuable. And we are called to be salt and light in our vocations. But these calls always are confusing, uncertain. What's next? Where am I going? Jesus may call us to move to Alaska, or to Europe, or to Pickens, or to New York. Who knows where, right? Jesus may call us to join a church plan effort. 
like those 13 individuals who decided upon a church here in 1977. I would imagine they were very confused and very uncertain. I admire those people. Jesus may call you to work at a summer camp and you say, where am I going to get the money for next school year? He may call you the mission and you're saying, how do I go about doing that? He may call you to switch jobs. He may call you to switch majors. And you will end up in a very, very different place, depending on which major you're going to, which job you take. He may call you to pick up and move across the country and take a new job where you don't even know anybody. He may be calling you into retirement or into a new neighborhood or into an assisted living facility. The Lord calls His people to very different places. And all these life transitions can be uncertain, they can be unsettling, and the fact is the future is always opaque. We just don't know. We cannot know. But Jesus' answer is always this. I will not leave you orphaned in the world. I'm not going to do that. I am going to give you another comforter. And wherever you go, and wherever I send you, I'm going to empower you to just keep on making disciples in my name. Regardless of your vocation, regardless of your location, regardless of your calling, I'm just going to keep on giving you my comforter. I have a good friend. I don't think you might be saying this. He's in the chemistry faculty at Bob Jones, and he's always said to me, you know, my life's calling has been to make disciples in the world of chemistry. And now he is on the verge of retirement. And we've talked a lot about this next transition. And for him, it's not the end. It's really the beginning of this next phase of his life. What does God want for me now in retirement? The Lord may call you to different places in construction or teaching or business, and he will put people in your pathway that I will never meet. Some preacher will never meet, but they are the ones that you are disciples. The Lord always promises his spirit. And now this morning, as I was just thinking through this whole text, I began also thinking, this isn't in my notes, all right, about the couple wars that we have happening in the world today. We have a war happening in Israel and Gaza today, and also in Ukraine. And you look at these things on the surface, and all seems very confusing, and what's happening, and who's right, and who's wrong, and both sides wrong, and both sides partially right. It's all very, very confusing. And we look at these things, and we look at the politics of our world, and it's very easy for us as Christians to get very disturbed. But we can always be certain of this, that God has an agenda for the nations. God has an agenda for the nations. And that agenda is always, always moving forward. And God's Spirit is always moving forward into every tribe and tongue and nation. So I am very, very glad that we have Brother Christian Way here today. And he's going to share with us at 11 15 what the Lord is doing in Asia. And uh, this is just one more example. One more example of everything that Jesus was talking about back here in the upper room. I'm going to send out my spirit, and you're going to be my disciples until the end of the age, until the ends of the earth. And so we do come back at 11 15, right here in this room, and we'll just want to continue, as it were, the application of today's sermon by hearing from Dr. Wang. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this delightful passage. Lord, we confess that we are often confused. Lord, we, we confess that we do not know the future. And I pray, Lord, that we would just learn from the disciples. 
back in the upper room, to just keep following. Although the, his disciples stumbled, Peter forsook you, he denied you three times. But Lord, he picked him back up and he sent him on a mission. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us all. Despite our stumbling, despite our failures, Lord, that you would just pick us back up, put us back on mission, and may we be found pleasing in your sight. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.